Section 6 of History of England, Volume 1E. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Tim Cote. History of England, Volume 1E, by David Hume. Section 6. The partisans of the court reasoned after a different manner. The true rule of government, said they, during any period, is that to which the people from time immemorial have been accustomed, and to which they naturally pay a prompt obedience, a practice which has ever struck their senses, and of which they have seen and heard innumerable precedents, has an authority with them much superior to that which attends maxims derived from antiquated statutes and moldy records. In vain do the lawyers establish it as a principle that a statute can never be abrogated by opposite custom, but requires to be expressly repealed by a contrary statute, while they pretend to inculcate an axiom peculiar to English jurisprudence, they violate the most established principles of human nature, and even by necessary consequence reason in contradiction to law itself, which they would represent as so sacred and inviolable. A law, to have any authority, must be derived from a legislature which has right. And whence do all legislatures derive their right? But from long custom and established practice. If a statute contrary to public good has at any time been rashly voted and assented to, either from the violence of faction or the inexperience of senates and princes, it cannot be more effectually abrogated by a train of contrary precedents, which prove that by common consent it has been tacitly set aside, as inconvenient and impracticable. Such has been the case with all those statutes enacted during turbulent times, in order to limit royal prerogative, and cramp the sovereign in his protection of the public, and his execution of the laws. But above all branches of prerogative, that which is most necessary to be preserved, is the power of imprisonment. Faction and discontent, like diseases, frequently arise in every political body, and during these disorders it is by the salutary exercise alone of this discretionary power that rebellions and civil wars can be prevented. To circumscribe this power is to destroy its nature. Entirely to abrogate it is impracticable, and the attempt itself must prove dangerous if not pernicious to the public. The supreme magistrate, in critical and turbulent times, will never, agreeably either to prudence or duty, allow the state to perish, while there remains a remedy which, how irregular soever, it is still in his power to apply. And if, moved by a regard to public good, he employs any exercise of power condemned by recent and express statute, how greedily, in such dangerous times, will factious leaders seize this pretense of throwing on his government the imputation of tyranny and despotism. Were the alternative quite necessary, it were surely much better for human society to be deprived of liberty than to be destitute of government. Impartial reasoners will confess that this subject is not on both sides without its difficulties. Where a general and rigid law is enacted against arbitrary imprisonment, it would appear that government cannot, in times of sedition and faction, be conducted but by temporary suspensions of the law, and such an expedient was never thought of during the age of Charles. 
The meetings of Parliament were too precarious, and their determinations might be too dilatory to serve in cases of urgent necessity. Nor was it then conceived that the king did not possess of himself sufficient power for the security and protection of his people, or that the authority of these popular assemblies was ever to become so absolute that the prince must always conform himself to it, and could never have any occasion to guard against their practices, as well as against those of his other subjects. Though the House of Lords was not insensible to the reasons urged in favor of the pretensions of the commons, they deemed the arguments pleaded in favor of the crown still more cogent and convincing. That assembly seems, during this whole period, to have acted in the main a reasonable and a moderate part, and if their bias inclined a little too much, as is natural, to the side of monarchy, they were far from entertaining any design of sacrificing to arbitrary will the liberties and privileges of the nation. Ashley, the king's surgeon, having asserted in pleading before the peers that the king must sometimes govern by acts of state as well as by law, this position gave such offense that he was immediately committed to prison and was not released but upon his recantation and submission. Being, however, afraid lest the commons should go too far in their projected petition, the peers proposed a plan of one more moderate, which they recommended to the consideration of the other house. It consisted merely in a general declaration that the great charter and the six statutes conceived to be explanations of it stand still in force to all intents and purposes, that, in consequence of the charter and the statutes, and by the tenor of the ancient customs and laws of the realm, every subject has a fundamental property in his goods, and a fundamental liberty of his person, that his property and liberty are as entire at present as during any former period of the English government, that in all common cases the common law ought to be the standard of proceedings, and in case that, for the security of his majesty's person, the general safety of his people, or the peaceable government of the kingdom, the king shall find just cause, for reasons of state, to imprison or restrain any man's person, he was petitioned graciously to declare that, within a convenient time, he shall and will express the cause of the commitment or restraint, either general or special, and, upon a cause so expressed, will leave the prisoner immediately to be tried according to the common law of the land. Archbishop Abbott was employed by the Lords to recommend, in a conference, this plan of a petition to the House of Commons. The prelate, as was no doubt foreseen from his known principles, was not extremely urgent in his applications, and the lower house was fully convinced that the general declarations signified nothing, and that the latter clause left their liberties rather in a worse condition than before. They proceeded, therefore, with great zeal in framing the model of a petition which should contain expressions more precise and more favorable to public freedom. The king could easily see the consequence of these proceedings. Though he had offered, at the beginning of the session, to give his consent to any law for the security of the rights and liberties of the people, he had not expected that such inroads would be made on his prerogative. In order, therefore, to divert the commons from their intention, he sent a message, wherein he acknowledged past errors, and promised that hereafter there should be no just cause of complaint. And he added, 
that the affairs of the kingdom press him so that he could not continue the session above a week or two longer and if the house be not ready by that time to do what is fit for themselves it shall be their own fault on a subsequent occasion he asked them why demand explanations if you doubt not the performance of the statutes according to their true meaning explanations will hazard an encroachment upon the prerogative and it may well be said what need a new law to confirm an old if you repose confidence in the declarations which his majesty made to both houses the truth is the great charter and the old statutes were sufficiently clear in favor of personal liberty but as all kings of england had ever in cases of necessity or expediency been accustomed at intervals to elude them and as charles in a complication of instances had lately violated them the commons judged it requisite to enact a new law which might not be eluded or violated by any interpretation construction or contrary precedent nor was it sufficient they thought that the king promised to return into the way of his predecessors his predecessors in all times had enjoyed too much discretionary power and by his recent abuse of it the whole world had reason to see the necessity of entirely retrenching it the king still persevered in his endeavors to elude the petition he sent a letter to the house of lords in which he went so far as to make a particular declaration that neither he nor his privy council shall or will at any time hereafter commit or command to prison or otherwise restrain any man for not lending money or for any other cause which in his conscience he thought not to concern the public good and the safety of the king and people and he further declared that he never would be guilty of so base an action as to pretend any cause of whose truth he was not fully satisfied but this promise though enforced to the commons by the recommendation of the upper house made no more impression than all the former messages among the other evasions of the king we may reckon the proposal of the house of peers to subjoin to the intended petition of right the following clause we humbly present this petition to your majesty not only with a care of preserving our own liberties but with due regard to leave entire that its sovereign power with which your majesty is entrusted for the protection safety and happiness of your people less penetration than was possessed by the leaders of the house of commons could easily discover how captious this clause was and how much it was calculated to elude the whole force of the petition these obstacles therefore being surmounted the petition of right passed the commons and was sent to the upper house this petition is of so great importance that we shall here give it at length humbly show unto our sovereign lord the king the lords spiritual and temporal and commons in parliament assembled that whereas it is declared and enacted by a statute made in the time of the reign of king edward i commonly called statatum de tallagio non concedendo that no tallage or aid shall be levied by the king or his heirs in this realm without the good will and assent of the archbishops bishops earls barons knights burgesses and other the freemen of the commonality of this realm and by authority of parliament holden in the five and twentieth year of the reign of king edward the third it is declared and enacted that from thenceforth no person shall be compelled to make any loans to the king against his will because such loans were against reason and the franchise of the land 
and by other laws of this realm it is provided that none should be charged by any charge or imposition called a benevolence or by such like charge by which the statutes before mentioned and other the good laws and statutes of this realm your subjects have inherited this freedom that they should not be compelled to contribute to any tax tallage aid or other like charge not set by common consent in parliament yet nevertheless of late diverse commissions directed to sundry commissioners in several counties with instructions have issued by means whereof your people have been in diverse places assembled and required to lend certain sums of money unto your majesty and many of them upon their refusal to do so have had an oath administered unto them not warrantable by the laws or statutes of this realm and have been constrained to become bound to make appearance and give attendance before your privy council and in other places and others of them have been therefore imprisoned confined and sundry other ways molested and disquieted and diverse other changes have been laid and levied upon your people in several counties by lord lieutenants deputy lieutenants commissioners for musters justices for peace and others by command or direction from your majesty or your privy council against the laws and free customs of this realm and whereas also by the statute called the great charter of the liberties of england it is declared and enacted that no freeman may be taken or imprisoned or be disseized of his freehold or liberties or his free customs or be outlawed or exiled or in any manner destroyed but by the lawful judgment of his peers or by the law of the land and in the eighth and twentieth year of the reign of king edward the third it was declared and enacted by authority of parliament that no man of what estate or condition that he be should be put out of his land or tenements nor taken nor imprisoned nor dispirited nor put to death without being brought to answer by due process of law nevertheless against the tenor of the said statutes and the other good laws and statutes of your realm to that end provided diverse of your subjects have of late been imprisoned without any cause showed and when for their deliverance they were brought before justice by your majesty's writs of habeas corpus there to undergo and receive as the court should order and their keepers commanded to certify the causes of their detainer no cause was certified but that they were detained by your majesty's special command signified by the lords of your privy council and yet were returned back to several prisons without being charged with anything to which they might make answer according to the law and whereas of late great companies of soldiers and mariners have been dispersed into diverse counties of the realm and the inhabitants against their wills have been compelled to receive them into their houses and there to suffer them to sojourn against the laws and customs of this realm and to the great grievance and vexation of the people and whereas also by authority of parliament in the five and twentieth year of the reign of king edward the third it is declared and enacted that no man should be forejudged of life or limb against the form of the great charter and law of the land and by the said great charter and other the laws and statutes of this your realm no man ought to be judged to death but by the laws established in this your realm either by the customs of the same realm or by acts of parliament and whereas no offender of what kind soever 
is exempted from the proceedings to be used, and punishments to be inflicted by the laws and statutes of this your realm. Nevertheless, of late diverse commissions, under your majesty's great seal, have issued forth, by which certain persons have been assigned and appointed commissioners, with power and authority to proceed within the land, according to the justice of martial law, against such soldiers and mariners, or other dissolute persons joining with them, as should commit any murder, robbery, felony, mutiny, or other outrage or misdemeanor whatsoever, and by such summary course and order as is agreeable to martial law, and as is used in armies in time of war, to proceed to the trial and condemnation of such offenders, and them to cause to be executed and put to death according to the law martial, by pretext whereof some of your majesty's subjects have been by some of the said commissioners put to death, when and where, if by the laws and statutes of the land they had deserved death, by the same laws and statutes also they might, and by no other ought, to have been judged and executed. And also sundry grievous offenders, by color thereof claiming an exemption, have escaped the punishments due to them by the laws and statutes of this your realm, by reason that diverse of your officers and ministers of justice have unjustly refused or forborne to proceed against such offenders, according to the same laws and statutes, upon pretense that the said offenders were punishable only by martial law, and by authority of such commissions as aforesaid, which commissions, and all other of like nature, are wholly and directly contrary to the said laws and statutes of this your realm. They do, therefore, humbly pray your most excellent majesty, that no man hereafter be compelled to make or yield any gift, loan, benevolence, tax, or such like charge, without common consent, by act of Parliament, and that none be called to make answer, or take such oath, or to give attendance, or be confined, or other ways molested or disquieted concerning the same, or for refusal thereof, and that no freeman, in any such manner as is before mentioned, be imprisoned or detained, and that your majesty would be pleased to remove the set of soldiers and mariners, and that people may not be so burdened in time to come, and that the aforesaid commissions, for proceeding by martial law, may be revoked and annulled, and that hereafter no commissions of like nature may issue forth, to any person or persons whatsoever, to be executed as aforesaid, lest, by color of them, any of your majesty's subjects be destroyed or put to death, contrary to the laws and franchise of the land. All which they most humbly pray of your most excellent majesty as their rights and liberties, according to the laws and statutes of this realm, and that your majesty would also vouchsafe to declare that the awards, doings, and proceedings to the prejudice of your people in any of the premises shall not be drawn hereafter into consequence or example, and that your majesty would be also graciously pleased for the further comfort and safety of your people, to declare your royal will and pleasure, that in the things aforesaid, all your officers and ministers shall serve you according to the laws and statutes of this realm, as they tender the honor of your majesty and the prosperity of this kingdom. The peers, who were probably well pleased in secret, that all their solicitations had been eluded by the commons, quickly passed the petition without any material alteration, and nothing but the royal assent was wanting 
to give it the force of a law. The king, accordingly, came to the House of Peers, sent for the commons, and being seated in his chair of state, the petition was read to him. Great was now the astonishment of all men, when instead of the usual concise and clear form by which a bill is either confirmed or rejected, Charles said, in answer to the petition, The king willeth that right be done according to the laws and customs of the realm, and that the statutes be put into execution, that his subjects may have no cause to complain of any wrong or impression, contrary to their just rights and liberties, to the preservation whereof, he holds himself in conscience as much obliged as of his own prerogative. It is surprising that Charles, who had seen so many instances of the jealousy of the commons, who had himself so much roused that jealousy by his frequent evasive messages during this session, could imagine that they would rest satisfied with an answer so vague and undeterminate. It was evident that the unusual form alone of the answer must excite their attention, that the disappointment must inflame their anger, and that therefore it was necessary, as the petition seemed to bear hard on royal prerogative, to come early to some fixed resolution, either gracefully to comply with it, or courageously to reject it. It happened as might have been foreseen. The commons returned in very ill humor. Usually, when in that disposition, their zeal for religion and their enmity against the unfortunate Catholics ran extremely high. But they had already, in the beginning of the session, presented their petition of religion and had received a satisfactory answer. Though they expected that the execution of the laws against papists would, for the future, be no more exact and rigid than they had hitherto found it, to give vent to their present indignation they fell with their utmost force on Dr. Manwaring. There is nothing which tends more to excuse, if not to justify, the extreme rigor of the commons towards Charles than his open encouragement and avowal of such general principles as were altogether incompatible with a limited government. Manwaring had preached a sermon which the commons found, upon inquiry, to be printed by special command of the king. And when this sermon was looked into, it contained doctrines subversive of all civil liberty, it taught that, though property was commonly lodged in the subject, yet, whenever any exigency required supply, all property was transferred to the sovereign, that the consent of Parliament was not necessary for the imposition of taxes, and that the divine laws required compliance with every demand, how irregular soever, which the prince should make upon his subjects. For these doctrines, the commons impeached man-wearing, the sentence pronounced upon him by the peers was that he should be imprisoned during the pleasure of the house, be fined a thousand pounds to the king, make submission and acknowledgment of his offense, be suspended during three years, be incapable of holding any ecclesiastical dignity or secular office, and that his book be called in and burnt. It may be worthy of notice that no sooner was the session ended than this man, so justly obnoxious to both houses, received a pardon, and was promoted to a living of considerable value. Some years after, he was raised to the see of St. Asaph. If the republican spirit of the commons increased beyond all reasonable bounds, the monarchical spirit of the court, this latter, carried to so high a pitch, tended still further to augment the former, and thus extremes were everywhere affected, 
and the just medium was gradually deserted by all men. From Manwaring, the House of Commons proceeded to censure the conduct of Buckingham, whose name hitherto they had cautiously forborne to mention. In vain did the king send them a message, in which he told them that the session was drawing near to a conclusion, and desired that they would not enter upon new business, nor cast any aspersions on his government and ministry. Though the court endeavored to explain and soften this message by a subsequent message, as Charles was apt hastily to correct any hasty step which he had taken, it served rather to inflame than appease the commons, as if the method of their proceedings had here been prescribed to them. It was foreseen that a great tempest was ready to burst on the duke, and in order to divert it, the king thought proper, upon a joint application of the lords and commons, to endeavor giving them satisfaction with regard to the petition of right. He came, therefore, to the House of Peers, and, pronouncing the usual form of words, let it be law, as is desired, gave full sanction and authority to the petition. The acclamations with which the House resounded, and the universal joy diffused over the nation, showed how much this petition had been the object of all men's vows and expectations. It may be affirmed, without any exaggeration, that the king's assent to the petition of right produced such a change in the government as was almost equivalent to a revolution, and by circumscribing in so many articles the royal prerogative gave additional security to the liberties of the subject. Yet were the commons far from being satisfied with this important concession. Their ill humor had been so much irritated by the king's frequent evasions and delays that it could not be presently appeased by an assent which he allowed to be so reluctantly extorted from him. Perhaps, too, the popular leaders, implacable and artful, saw the opportunity favorable, and, turning against the king those very weapons with which he had furnished them, resolved to pursue the victory. The bill, however, for five subsidies, which had been formally voted, immediately passed the House, because the granting of that supply was, in a manner, tacitly contracted for, upon the royal assent to the petition, and had faith been here violated, no further confidence could have subsisted between King and Parliament. Having made this concession, the Commons continued to carry their scrutiny into every part of government. In some particulars, their industry was laudable. In some, it may be liable to censure. A little after writs were issued for summoning this Parliament, a commission had been granted to Sir Thomas Coventry, Lord Keeper, the Earl of Marlborough, Treasurer, the Earl of Manchester, President of the Council, the Earl of Worcester, Privy Seal, the Duke of Buckingham, High Admiral, and all the considerable officers of the Crown, in the whole thirty-three. By this commission, which, from the number of persons named in it, could be no secret, the commissioners were empowered to meet and to concert among themselves the methods of levying money by impositions or otherwise where form and circumstance, as expressed in the commission, must be dispensed with rather than the substance be lost or hazarded. In other words, this was a scheme for finding expedients which might raise the prerogative to the greatest height and render parliaments entirely useless. The commons applied for cancelling the commission, 
and were no doubt desirous that all the world should conclude the king's principles to be extremely arbitrary and should observe what little regard he was disposed to pay to the liberties and privileges of his people end of section six recording by tim cote of santa maria california february eighth two thousand thirteen